unlike other sports, triathlon tends to bring people off the couch more than any other sport. And, and that's the reason why you know, the cyclists give us a hard time, triathletes are terrible impacts. Well, it's because most people who did no sport come to triathlon. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 65 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking triathlon. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and a very quick review to get us underway today. Five-star credibility, content, and delivery from Blairy MTB in Australia. I'm so impressed by this podcast, and I look forward to it every week. I've been racing bikes at a high level for a long time, but I really like to hear Damien's perspective on things that sometimes agrees and other times challenges my way of thinking. I think that everybody still has room to improve, and this podcast helps me develop as a cyclist. I really like the enthusiasm that Damien brings to every episode. This and the well researched and well-delivered content along with the presenter's high level of credibility make this podcast very effective. Well done, Damien, and keep up the great work. Wow. Thank you very much, Blairy. That really does mean a lot to me, and I really do take those kind words to heart. And a reminder to you that you can definitely write a review for me in the iTunes store. If you do love the show, Please take some time out to do it. Thank you very much. Now, the news this week, Giro di Lombardia. How can you go past Rodriguez, the incredulous Rodriguez, after last week's Worlds, will have some solace for the end of the season. He won't have solace for coming second in the world, though. I think that's going to haunt him for a lifetime. But it was a pretty amazing attack up the 15% pitch in the last climb. You can't say that Rodriguez doesn't have heart. He was probably riding on pure fitness from the world, but also pure hunger today. He wanted to go out. He wanted to win it, and he won it for the second time in a row. So well done, Rodriguez. And as far as Lombardia, it really signals the end of the road season for me. The Tour of Beijing, nah, I'm just not too excited about it. I'm kind of done, and so you're not really going to hear a lot of road cycling news here for at least a couple of months while the pros lay low. And I'm going to try and bring some other stuff into this section, and we'll just see what happens from there. Talking about other stuff, I don't know how this has slipped through the media, but Xpedo, I don't know if you know about this brand. They're a pedal brand from Taiwan. I've actually owned a pair of their pedals, and I've got to say I had absolutely no complaints with it. But they're in the process of developing a power pedal. They're going to probably call it the Thrust E, but it seems like this information is just totally slipped through everyone, and I haven't heard about it. It wasn't until I just came across something regarding Interbike that it kind of stood out to me, but it's a strain gauge-based pedal body with an Ant Plus transmitter there, so you've got to say it's another power pedal meter that's coming to the market. The target is under 1,000 US from what I hear, which is the magic number when it comes to power meters, but I've got to say after watching DC Rainmaker's Ant Plus conference talk this week that I really think that this year was or is the power meter year. 2013, there's been a lot of changes happening this year. 
one really long-weighted addition, but also things like the stages bringing the price down and affecting PowerTap, and they also dropped prices by 500 bucks per unit. So you've got to say that this year was a big year, and now with the capabilities that are actually built into the hardware, it's really time to start developing the software and our ideas behind training with power to really push this technology as far as it can go. And so I really think next year, if we see something like this come out, it won't be a really big deal. People will just jump on it, but it's not going to mean that the industry is going to change. So hopefully we will see them 2014 at the Taipei show. That could mean mid-2014 they could be on your bike. The funny thing is when you have a look at the pictures, and I'll link up to the pictures uh, where I found them on Pez Cycling News, you link up to the pictures, you have a look at the unit, the unit is definitely exposed. I'm sure it's going to change slightly from what they have here to the actual production unit, but if you're worried about crashing on Garmin Vectors, you're definitely not even taking your bike off the trainer for the thrusties. So that's an interesting thing, but if they're a little cheaper and they have a crash replacement program, I really don't see a problem because I really think pedals are a great place to have a power meter because the transferability. That portability from bike to bike, what would be even cooler was if you could just replace the outer unit of the pedal itself from mountain biking to road so you wouldn't have to buy two sets, you just have to replace it. I think something like that could add so much value to everybody that's wanting to get into the power meter market, but it's just a thought from now or probably just a dream for the next five, ten years, but I still am excited about power and I highly recommend it to every single person out there. Alrighty then, the nuts and bolts this week, testing restedness. I don't even know that's a word, but I just ran with it. Weekly monitoring for cyclists. So you have heard me harp on over and over again about the importance of testing and measuring, and I'm not going to change my mind in this episode at all. So you can just sit back and relax. But getting to the bottom of testing, what are you doing? You're monitoring changes in performance, and it's all about the balance between your training load and recovery so that you can keep moving forward, gaining fitness and strength. But even after being armed with the knowledge of doing it and even trying to slot it in, it really becomes quite difficult and quite impractical when you're trying to throw the odd test in every four and six weeks. And the reason is because they're generally maximal tests. So maximal tests meaning that you're going flat out for a set amount of time. They're also hard to work up to mentally and they take time to recover from. So this all kind of means that it throws a spanner in the works if you're doing some set type of training that's not in the same realm that you're testing for. It does create a difficult problem when you're a coach or an athlete and you're trying to put them and slot them into your program. But I'll go back a little bit here and be honest with you. When I was thinking about this episode, I wasn't trying to replace this type of testing. I really see it as super important and there's no way around actually doing it. I was instead inspired by this clip. So my first training session today will be a 17-minute session on the trainer, on the indoor trainer. And that'll basically be a, a session designed to estimate how fatigued I am before I go out onto my first uh, intervals for the day. So Barry Stander here, RIP, has fascinated me from the moment I first listened to this. It's a pretty accurate gauge of whether or not uh, your body is ready for you know, a heavy training load or whether I should take it easy for the rest of the day. 
So what he was talking about here was a short session that helps guide your workout by giving you an idea of how ready you are to start the real work. I listened to this probably six or eight months ago, and I have been racking my brains ever since trying to figure out what he was actually talking about and whether it was just one coach that developed it for him or we're talking about a protocol that could be used for other people. I just wasn't exactly sure what he was doing. But now enter Dr. Robert P. Lambert's and the Lambert's and Lambert Submaximal Cycle Test, or the LSCT. And before we get into it, though, let's find out how Burry's session went. The numbers were average to a little bit low, but I figured, you know, with the jet lag, it might just be that I need to to wake up a bit more. So I'm going to head out onto the road now and uh, see how things go. So he has average to low numbers, but he went out anyway. Hmm. We'll find out what happens on the road a little later in the show. But for now, back to the LSCT. Lambert's developed this test with the purpose of monitoring and predicting changes in cycling performance, just like any other test. He developed it as part of his PhD with the University of Cape Town and the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, which is quite an influential part of the world when it comes to sports science. And one of Lambert's actual supervisors was Professor Timothy D. Noakes. So his thesis that he wrote is called The Development of an Evidence-Based Submaximal Cycle Test Designed to Monitor and Predict Cycling Performance. I've got to say it's an accurate title, but it's very hard to get your mouth around and probably doesn't make much sense right now. But he basically aimed to develop a submaximal cycle test, so different from the maximal test, and he wanted it to be scientifically relevant, so sufficient precision and evidence-based, and the purpose was to monitor and predict cycling performance. In an attempt to do this, he set down some criteria that he wanted to follow while he was actually creating the test. And a couple of these are should be non-invasive and submaximal, should not interfere with the subject's normal training or racing habits, should be able to use the test for warming up before a performance test, training session, or racing event, should have a maximal duration of a normal warming up period, about 20 minutes, and have sufficient sensitivity to be able to reflect meaningful changes in performance. This is super clever because the big element here is the pre-thought involved in creating something that can actually be taken out of the lab and reproduced in real situations. It doesn't replace the need for maximal testing, but it definitely attempts to fill the gaps between them. And so the LSCT has shown to be reliable. So through this actual thesis, he was able to show that it is reliable and it's able to predict cycling performance and also able to track changes in training status. This is a super big finding and I'm surprised that I haven't come across this before now. Of course, this is just one test, but I will link to the actual thesis and you can have a look how detailed this thesis actually was and it covered more than than one test over a group of riders plus an individual professional rider. So there's a lot of weight behind this. Of course, there are still some more recommendations that came out the back end of this and they haven't been done yet, but I do believe they're on their way. But anyway, the LSCT is able to track changes in training status and detect the consequences of sharp increases in training loads, which seem to be associated with accumulating fatigue. For example, and this should be very obvious to anyone listening, as you get fitter, heart rate decreases 
increases during exercise at a given workload. So your power at a set heart rate will be increasing. However, if your body is not well rested and recovered from previous sessions, you may pedal at 80% of your maximum heart rate, yet develop a power that is substantially lower than normal. So it's these types of indicators that Lamberts was looking for when he was trying to set up this test, and it seems that he actually got them. Remember Burry saying his numbers were a bit low, but he was going to go out anyway? Well... Yeah, so basically I went out onto the road this morning. I did my uh, a warm-up uh, and uh, yeah, just felt really sleepy. Um, my body didn't feel too bad. I wasn't so stiff or anything like that. Um, I could just feel that uh, I wasn't going to make the numbers that were necessary today. So I've decided to come back this afternoon and, and take it easy. So how predictable was that? Because the funny thing is that this is exactly what the LSCT is trying to stop. It's trying to stop super keen riders from pushing too hard and going out when they shouldn't. I am very sure that his coach was cringing when he heard this because as a coach, you always should err on the side of caution. But as an athlete... I'm sure you err on the side of she'll be right, mate, or it can't hurt. So what was the result in Barry's case? Wasted effort and time that could have been better spent actually recovering. And two takeaways that I get from here is that it's a small bit of proof supporting the effectiveness of the LSCT. And at that time, jet lag may have been his reasons, and jet lag may not be on your list of reasons for feeling fatigued, but the same would apply after a hard week of training or when you're ramping up the training load very suddenly. Secondly, and more importantly, use this as a gauge, but learn to trust your body in relation to the tests that you put in place. Because getting familiar with the numbers, even if you have a coach, Burry's coach didn't sleep at the house to watch him every single time he got on a bike. So you have to take some responsibility in your own body and listen to it. And now that I'm done with the little preachy preachy, have I convinced you enough to give it a go? Because I really believe you have nothing to lose here. One little disclaimer, if you're listening to this and you wouldn't consider yourself well-trained or at least a couple of years deep into cycling, even if that's just riding around, then this might be too much for you. Ask me if you're unsure. But say we're going to look into this, we're really going to aim for weekly tests because if it's used weekly to assess changes in training status and to monitor fatigue, you can get a bit of a database going and you can really understand the changes on a weekly basis. The four to six week tests that you would be doing at a maximal level are also interesting. This would just provide another set of data that you can just check out where you are. And if it has that double-pronged effect of looking at performance gains plus fatigue, then I see it as really filling in the gap. Ultimately, though, you want to look at when you do this. And of course, because this is a pseudoscience experiment for you, you're going to have to control everything around it. But you really want to make sure that it is in the same spot every week. What workout to actually put it before, you want it to be a hard or a key training session so that you know whether to go forward with that session or not. If it's no, then do it again the next day and try it out and see whether you can do it. But you also want to place it on a day where your complete recovery may be in question because you haven't recovered from something you did the day before or two days before that. It's probably as simple as just saying if Tuesday is your first hard day after you have Monday as a rest day, then just put it in before the Tuesday workout or the same thing for your Thursday workout and just stick with that. Get the data down and do it in the same way each week and then you will be able to get an understanding and we'll see the benefits in a moment. But how do you actually perform the LSCT? The big, big question. 
I will link directly to Lambert's science and cycling website that holds this protocol and how to perform it. So you can get it straight from the horse's mouth. But a basic overview is that it's three stages. Well, it's actually four, but three of pedaling and one of not pedaling. But at each stage, you're measuring three things. So you're measuring RPE on the Borg's 6 to 20 scale, and you're measuring heart rate recovery and you're measuring power. So you have to be able to have heart rate and power and RPE you just make up. They've got to be your prereqs for being able to do this test in the first place. You will want to take note and record these through the stages, probably just a mental note if you're going through, but you should get a feel for this over time. And at the end, you will need to have quantified the test through your power during the stages, your heart rate recovery at one minute after you stop pedaling, which will make sense in a moment, and your RPE of the overall effort. And so you have an idea of what you would be working with with. Here is a more detailed description. So the LSCT, and I'm just quoting this directly from the website, and I believe this is exactly from the thesis as well. The total duration of the LSCT is 17 minutes, during which time subjects are asked to cycle at intensities which elicit target heart rates of 60% at stage 1, 80% at stage 2, and 90% at stage 3. Target heart rates for each of the different stages are calculated based on a heart rate maximum, which is preferably done by a peak power output test or a VO2 max test. After the calibration of the ergometer, subjects should change their front derailleur to the small chain ring, after which the LSCT can be started. During the LSCT, subjects are allowed to change their gear ratio on the rear derailleur to match the exercise intensity with the targeted heart rate. During the first stage, 60% heart rate subjects should aim to keep their heart rate within plus or minus two beats of the target heart rate. Example for 150 between 148 and 152. After stage one, subjects are asked to change their front derailleur to the large chain ring and ergometer can possibly be recalibrated recalibrated during a 30-second period. During stage two and three, subjects are again allowed to adjust their gear ratio at the rear derailleur while the front derailleur will remain on the large chain ring. With stage two, subjects are asked to target 80% of heart rate max, while subjects during stage three will be asked to target 90% of heart rate max. Heart rate during stage two should be kept within a one beat of the target heart rate. For example, if it's 174, between 173 and 175. Directly after stage three, at 15 minutes 30, subjects are asked to stop cycling and sit straight up so that the heart rate recovery data could be captured over the final 90 seconds. Rating of perceived exertions between 6 and 20 should be given at 5 minutes for stage 1, at 12 minutes for stage 2, and 15 minutes for stage 3. So this does seem like a hell of a lot to keep in your mind. I'm sure that you could slightly modify this so you're comfortable with doing it, but after time, if you're doing it weekly, I bet you'll be able to do this without even thinking about it, and you're able to concentrate on keeping your heart rate at that steady beat, which seemed quite difficult initially, but you'll have to definitely figure out a way to record your RPE. So you have noticed by now that it is heart rate that this test is actually based on. This test was started in 2009, but it was done on a CompuTrainer, so there was power there. I don't have the reason that they didn't actually stick to power and then watch how the heart rate changes. You probably could flip them around. I'm not going to recommend it because I haven't tried it for myself, so I don't know what it is, and there must be a logical reason, which I was unable to uncover, but maybe asking the man himself one day might be able to help. 
But if you were going to do this, setting your power at a rate that relates to a similar heart rate could probably be just the same and then watching your heart rate recovery when you do stop pedaling. So some practical tips to do this, do your best to keep the conditions as similar week to week as possible. So the time you train, the time between eating and starting the session, your caffeine intake, which is one really big thing because it is heart rate. It is going to change depending on what you consume and caffeine is one of those and also sleep deprivation. So for all the reasons that I recommend against heart rate, you should be checking into this. But the more that you standardize the conditions, the more confident that you or your coach can be in interpreting the data. And also, trying to hit 90% heart rate max is definitely a skill. And the first time you're going to do it, it's going to be very hard to get it. Three minutes isn't very long to get it up to 90% and to stay there. And of course, it's going to be lag over the entire time, but close to 90% is going to be a lot harder than you think it is. So definitely just store the information if you can't get there and come back at it the next week and then see how you go from there. Also, some other things, don't talk during the test and during the heart rate recovery period, and also minimize confounding factors. So other distracting factors such as talking to other cyclists or other cyclists being there while you're doing it. Basically, the idea is really just keeping a steady pedal rate over the course of the 15 minutes that you're doing the step ups and then you're matching your output to that. And definitely note that your heart rate is going to lag behind on each step up that you make. So if you want to make comparisons between power and heart rate, do it at least after a minute from when you start a new step. All right, so you've done this and you've got all the information down. What are you looking for? You're just basically looking for two things, improved training status or decrease in training status. So there are definitely some markers to watch out for. We've got those three metrics that we're measuring during and after, and they're actually going to tell you. But the interesting thing is that what Lambert's came up with is that you have to make a change in all three for it to be a total no-no for you to keep going. There is a chart on his website, which I'll link to again. I'm just iffy about putting it on my website because it is copyrighted. I want to respect the dude's information. But say none of your parameters change, then there is no problems to keep on training. If there is a change in one of the parameters, then that is time to carefully monitor the symptoms. And it might not mean that you have to stop doing the ride for the day, but definitely consider the effects of that. When you start moving into two and three, and this is when you really want to be careful. So if you start getting two changes in the parameters, then you want to lower the training load and or increase the recovery period. And if you get three, then you really want to minimize the training load or increase recovery time even more. And so having the backup of this being scientifically evidence-based and proven definitely is a good starting point, but it still is up to you to decide how you use this and how effective it's going to be. If you start cutting corners on certain things, then it's not going to be effective. And so if you're going to implement it, implement it 100% for at least something like eight weeks so you can get enough data to make decisions from. Even if you don't stop training on the actual day because you don't believe what it's telling you, then definitely compare that to your training load and see if the comparisons rise in the same way. If you're really, really interested in this stuff, I highly recommend you check out the thesis itself because it has a lot of information and and graphs that will be able to clarify certain points that I haven't been able to cover today. But I definitely hope that you consider using this. I am going to start implementing this in my own training when it gets to that point. I'm not there yet, but I will consider using this with other athletes that I help train because I think that there really is some merit in it 
And like I said, it's not always possible to get the best out of those four to six week maximal testing. And so having some tests and some monitoring in between those is really going to be the biggest benefit of this. All right, the tech hacks and product section. Now, how do you set up your screen on your computer on your bike? Not really a hack but more sort of tech today, it's the screen setup. And if you focus on key metrics that are easy and quick to read, then you'll be able to save all the other details for post-ride analysis and you won't get distracted while you're actual riding. I have three screens and three sets of data that I have in three different situations. So, And I'll have these in order of importance. And if you can't fit them all in or you want to have less, then just start chopping them from the bottom. And starting at the top, on a normal ride, Time, power, kilojoules, speed, cadence, heart rate, distance. I really think that they're all the key ones and you can mess around with speed, cadence and whether you keep them in or not because it's the other ones that are telling you how hard you're actually working that is probably more important. The second actual screen that I have is interval data. And so if you're doing any type of interval, then I really think this screen is going to help you out. And it's very, very simple. It does change depending on what you want to get from the actual interval. But at its simplest form, you want time, whether that is lap time because you're doing laps, or you just want to have overall 